0: God is good, and it is a blessing that God has given us, uh, that we're able to be here together, that we're able to worship him, that we're able to open his word, to read his thoughts, his mind. I invite you uh, to open your Bibles with me as we study today. If there's any value, any power uh, in the things that we're going to study together, it's going to come from the power of God's word. We started two weeks ago um, a series focusing on the idea of God's church versus my church. Uh, it's very common um, for, for society, for, for us, uh, to view church as something that is primarily about my preferences, my desires, what's going to meet my needs at this stage of life, uh, what's going to address my my interests. Um, But as we look to the scriptures, we see that our primary priority, our primary concern needs to be what does God want his church to be? It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. Uh, And so I want us to to consider together what what is it that God desires from this church? Um, And how can we each day, each week be that more and more? We, we talked two weeks ago about the idea of a benevolence versus big business for uh, many churches in America. Church, churches become an enterprise uh, that we're seeking to, to bigger and better ourselves, um, see how many followers we can get, see how many people we can get in the door. And we, we urged uh, ourselves from the scriptures to see that we need to get away from this corporate or business mindset uh, towards biggering and bettering ourselves, and focus on what what is the work, what is the ministry that God has given His church to do. And closely related with that, t- today I want us to consider the idea of soul saving versus salesmanship. In the early 1950s, India had just formed itself as an independent nation, and there was still much debate over the wording of its new constitution. Regarding the freedom of religion, it stated, each individual has the right to profess, practice, and propagate his faith. The word propagate became a point of contention for some Uh, who were worried that the Christian minority would use that idea to upset the religious culture of India. The story is told that a Hindu delegate stood up and defended this phrase in their constitution by stating the following. To the Christian, it is inherent to propagate his faith. If he is faithful to his faith, he must propagate his faith. So if you do not allow him to propagate his faith... You do not allow him to practice his faith. I don't know if that story is true or not, um, but I think it does very well illustrate uh, to us the, the prime importance of evangelism to what it means to be a Christian. It is true that we cannot practice our faith as Christians the way that God intended for us to do without propagating, without spreading that faith. You can't be a disciple without seeking to make disciples. You can't receive the gospel without seeking to share the gospels. And you can't read the pages of your New Testament without seeing the passion that Jesus has for lost souls, without seeing the passion that the early church had in spreading the good news of the kingdom, the good news of salvation. But in modern American culture, evangelism has almost become taboo. Trying to make converts is seen as presumptuous, arrogant, or interfering in people, uh, other people's business. Um, you know, Religion is one of the things that you're not supposed to talk about. <laughs> and you're certainly not supposed to tell other people what they should believe about it. And so for many churches, the focus has shifted from making converts to making customers, making consumers. And the message has become, listen, we won't tell you how to live your life. Uh, We're not going to tell you what to believe. but, But we hope that we can convince you to come to our church and glean what you can from it. And we began to view evangelism uh, not necessarily as the work of disciples, as the work of Christians, but evangelism primarily as the the work of the, the church marketing director, right? I'm afraid in many cases we've lost sight of Jesus's mission of soul saving and replaced it with salesmanship, with marketing. What would Jesus say about that? How did Jesus approach evangelism? What kind of pattern for evangelism do we see within the New Testament church? If this is not my church and this is God's church, then then what should our evangelism look like? What would God desire for it to be? I think we'll see, first of all, um, that Jesus's goal Jesus' mission on earth was to make genuine disciples. Turn your Bibles with me to to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, the very end of Matthew's gospel. uh, As Jesus is getting ready to, to leave this earth, to ascend into heaven, this is the last thing that we see him saying to his disciples, starting in Matthew 28 and verse 18. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We sometimes call this passage, the great commission. Um, And this is really the, the, prime directive of the church. This is the mission of us as disciples. You could consider this the mission statement of the church. And what is it? To make disciples. Not to make customers. Not to grow a fan club or or Twitter followers or, or YouTube subscribers. To make disciples. What does that mean? What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower, someone committed to following King Jesus. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven, on earth. Therefore, listen, I'm king. Therefore, go out and tell people that I'm king. And teach people to become disciples, become followers. And what does that mean? That means obeying all that I command you. That means submitting to me as king. That's the goal. That is the mission. That's why this church exists. Is to help bring souls to become disciples, followers, kingdom citizens, submitting to King Jesus, glorifying him and obeying him in their lives as we seek to do the same. And as we think about what it means to make genuine disciples, I think it's helpful to turn to Luke 14, where Jesus talks a little bit about the cost of discipleship. If we want to understand what being a disciple truly means, perhaps uh, we should read here in Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Verse 25, it says now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, in verse 33 Jesus says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What what does it cost? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Do, do Do you see what's going on here? Jesus has a crowd of people following him. This looks like a great opportunity Uh, for the church marketing director, right? We want to get this crowd of people. We want to get them in the door. And what does Jesus do? He turns around and he says, if you want to be my disciple, you need to hate your father and mother and your brother and sister and your own children. What is Jesus saying there? I, I think Jesus is very clearly using hyperbolic language to make a point here. Jesus isn't saying, well, my disciples are the people who hate one another. You know, that, that's not the, the point that he's making. He, he is emphasizing here the extent to which they need to be devoted to following Jesus. So devoted to following Jesus that any other relationship, no matter how important it is, needs to take a backseat to their devotion to him. Even their own lives. They need to, to hate uh their own lives in the sense of it doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what my goals in life are. what is of prime importance is following King Jesus. Can you imagine in this situation, um, you know, what somebody coming along and saying, you know, Jesus, um, maybe you need to get a new marketing director because that's not really working very well. (laughs) That's not what the people want to hear. Right. Well, what what is Jesus' goal though? Jesus' goal isn't to get a crowd. He turns to the crowd and he tells them, listen, this is what following me means. That's making disciples. People who are willing to decisively remove any other thing from the throne of their hearts that Jesus may sit there. What my family thinks of me, my own personal feelings and preferences, my possessions, my pursuits in life, all need to get kicked out of the driver's seat and pushed to the back so that Jesus can take control. That is genuine discipleship. And Jesus wants to encourage us to count the cost. He wants us to fully understand what it is we are signing up for. Following Jesus is not a casual endeavor. It is an all or nothing affair. And so as we think about our mission of making disciples, we need to have a very clear picture in our mind of what that means, what that means for us, what that means as we seek to bring others to submission to King Jesus. And so we see also Jesus's caution that Jesus did not in the least want to string along the unconverted. The goal of making disciples impacted the way that Jesus taught and impacted the way that he evangelized. Jesus wasn't interested in seeing how many followers he could string along. He wasn't looking to grow his fan club. To Jesus, numerical growth was useless without proper devotion. In fact, it might very well be harmful to his cause. He intentionally turned away the half-hearted followers. Look in Luke chapter nine, a few pages earlier. Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 57. Verse 57, we read, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests Once again, at the beginning of this passage, we see somebody coming to Jesus. And and do you see what he says? He says, I will follow you wherever you go. How would we tend to respond to somebody who who came with with that statement, with that attitude? If somebody came in these doors and said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow him wherever he goes. What what would our initial response be? And, And I think rightly so. We'd be excited about that. Great, you know, let, let's, let's get you baptized. You can become part of this church. You can start serving. What is Jesus' response though? Jesus says in verse 58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Why does he say that? He wants him to make sure he understands what it means to be his follower. In fact, in the very context, Jesus had just gone through Samaria and the Samaritans had rejected him. He very well, just that very night or, or shortly before, had had no place to lay his head as no one welcomed him into his home. It says, if you're going to follow me, I want you to understand what it is you're getting into. This is not something where, you, you know, this is not a health and wealth gospel where, where you're going to have all the, the earthly comforts that you want as long as you just follow me. No, this is a sacrificial gospel. This means taking up your cross and following me. Another comes, uh, or Jesus rather, says to another, follow me in verse 59. And the man says, well, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Certainly, uh, especially in the culture of that time, that would be a very understandable request, right? It was considered almost a sacred obligation to to make sure that they they honored their parents and burying them. But Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I think there there is an Old Testament context here that is worth noting. Under the old law, there were two cases in which somebody was prevented or or, um, uh, excluded from participating in the burial, even of their own parents. Uh, One of those cases uh, in Numbers Chapter six was in the burial uh, or when somebody had taken a Nazarite vow. Uh, If they had dedicated themselves to the Lord in that way, then even if it was their own parent, they were not to defile themselves by uh, coming in contact with the dead. The other case was for the high priest in Leviticus 21. The high priest, because of the importance of his role, wasn't to defile himself even for his own family members. Um, to become unclean in, in the contact with the dead. What is Jesus telling this person here? I think essentially what he's saying is being my disciple is as sacred of an obligation as being the high priest, <laughs> as sacred of an obligation as taking an as right vow. Um, we, you know, taking care of the, the physical burial of this fleshly body, this empty shell, is not near as important as the work that I've called you to do. Going and proclaiming the kingdom of God. By the way, you see there what it means to be a disciple propagating our faith. One says, Lord, uh, here uh, again in um, in verse 61 says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Um, I don't know if Jesus necessarily condemns this uh, directly. Uh, this is, in fact, what we see Elisha doing before he goes and follows Elijah. But he makes it very clear to this individual Um that he needs not to be distracted or entangled by the things behind him. He says there in verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If we want to be a disciple, we need to make sure that there is nothing within our lives that is going to take higher priority. Nothing that is going to get a let me first other than following the Lord. That's what has to come first if we want to be Jesus' disciple. And so when we think about sharing the gospel, that's part of the gospel. When we think about making disciples, that's what it means to be a disciple. I'm afraid sometimes in our eagerness to share the gospel, we we can end up trying to attract people to the gospel by something other than the gospel. Um, We try to kind of water down the message of of what it requires to follow Jesus, um, to to get people in the door, to get people coming in. And then we kind of almost do the bait and switch um, and then try to make them genuine disciples. But what often happens is when we try to attract people to the gospel by social programs, by free meals, by entertainment-oriented assemblies, uh, what we attract them with is often what they are attract- what they are converted to. Jesus refused to take that approach. He didn't take the bait and switch at all. Jesus, from the very start, made it very clear what it meant to be a disciple. In John chapter 6, if you want to turn there with me. This is a passage uh, that Christopher read for us a moment ago. You see in John chapter 6, Jesus... Uh, works a miracle to feed the 5,000. He does this uh, to show his power, uh, to prove his, his deity, uh, but also to show his compassion, genuine compassion for the people. But you notice in verse 26, um, verse 25, they, they've been following him. They want to find this one that, that has uh, was able to feed all this multitude with just five loaves and two fish. But in verse 26, it says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. How does Jesus Respond. Here are these people, they're so committed. These people, you know, when they see that Jesus has left, they're gonna follow, you know, try to find him. They're gonna go all the way around to the other side of the sea to, to see if they can locate him. And when they get there, what does Jesus say? He says, You're not following me for the right reasons. Jesus didn't say, look, we've attracted a crowd. What a great opportunity. He said, you guys aren't here. Uh, for the right reasons, if food is all you're interested in, you might as well go home. And Jesus proceeded to give them a teaching that was very difficult to swallow. Jesus goes on to talk about he, how he is the bread of life. And if they want to come to him, they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Uh you know, that, that's symbolic for the idea of, of imbibing him, uh, of taking part in his sacrifice ultimately. Uh, but to the Jews especially, um, you know, the, the idea of cannibalism would be uh, repugnant to, to just about any people, but the Jews, you know, the drinking of any blood was forbidden under the old law. They have a very hard time with this teaching. And so by the end of John 6... You notice in uh, John 6 and verse 60 it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Down in verse 66, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Do you think Jesus could have kept those followers if he wanted to? You think he could have fed them again? Certainly he had the power to, right? Do you think maybe he could have picked some teaching that wouldn't have been so difficult for them? Maybe some teaching that that would have strung them along a little bit longer. But he didn't do that, did he? And so by the end of this passage, you, you go from having people following Jesus from far away, an entire crowd of people, to everybody walking away from him. And only just a few disciples being left. Did Jesus fail? You know, does Jesus need to hire a new marketing director to take care of this crisis? No, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And yet Jesus wasn't interested in numerical growth as much as he was interested in genuinely receiving the devotion and commitment of the souls that were coming to him. And if that's not what was going to happen, they'd be better off not convincing themselves that they were following Jesus, uh, than serving him half-heartedly. While Jesus did these signs to prove his identity uh, and to express his genuine care for the people, Jesus never uses fleshly, earthly means to try to attract people to becoming disciples, to obeying the gospel. If Jesus didn't use worldly incentives to attract people, how did he aim to attract them? We see Jesus's emphasis is ultimately the power of God's word. Look in verse 44 and 45 of this passage. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Who are the ones that are going to be drawn to Jesus? Who are the ones that that are going to follow him? Only the ones who are drawn, not by the food. Those who are drawn by the Father. By a desire to serve the Lord. By his word. Those who are taught from God's mouth. Where was the emphasis here? Not by attracting people to the gospel by some earthly means, but by attracting people by the gospel itself. And if that's what they were attracted to, if they were attracted because they were seeking the Lord first and foremost, then that's genuine discipleship. You know, sometimes we we might start thinking, well, what is it that people are looking for? And how can we as a church do better at giving people what they're looking for. If, if we can find out what it is that people are interested in, maybe we can do more of that. We can get them in the door and then we can teach them in the gospel. Is that Jesus's approach? Not at all. He very adamantly stands against that approach. Jesus first and foremost wants them to be drawn because they are seeking the father. And if that's what draws them, then they will genuinely be his disciples. The way we present the gospel needs to keep that as the emphasis. The church should not be trying to appeal to anybody and everybody. The church should be appealing to those who are genuinely seeking the Lord. We want to encourage people to seek the Lord. We want to encourage anybody and everybody to seek the Lord. But that has to be what draws them. Remember Matthew 13 where Jesus tells the parable of the sower. I think, you know, the the point of this parable is primarily about the condition of our hearts, the condition of the soul, soil. Um, But but I think we learn some things about Jesus's approach to evangelism as well. You think about this this story, this parable that he tells, we, we have this farmer going out and he takes his seed and he throws it everywhere. He throws it on the wayside soil, you know, on the road. He throws it uh, into the thorns. He throws it over into the stones. And he also throws it on the, the good soil. You think to the agricultural world of that day, that would have been a common picture for them. You know, here's this farmer. He's got this bag of seed and he wants to make the most out of it. Make sure he gets the, the greatest profit, uh, profit from, from what he has. And so he's going to go out and he's just going to throw it everywhere. That, that's not how they would approach it, right? No, we're going to go to a field. We're going to take out all the rocks. We're going to take out all the weeds. We're going to plow it. We're going to get it ready. Then we're going to sow the seed, right? But that's not how Jesus tells the story, does he? What is that showing us? Well, when we sow the seed, we're sowing it everywhere, right? Uh, it's not about picking out you know, the, the, just the right soil and then we're going to put the seed there. No, Jesus throws it everywhere. And he doesn't plow, he doesn't fertilize, he doesn't cultivate. He wastes a lot of seed, by our estimation, on unprepared ground. But Jesus uses that unconventional uh, unconventional picture to make a point. The success of evangelism has to do with the power of the seed and the heart of the hearer. More than anything else, those are the determining factors. When we start thinking that it depends on our marketing strategies, our sales tactics, on us picking the right approach for the right person, on us making the message more relevant uh, to the interests or concerns of 21st century culture, we've really missed the point. Jesus hasn't called us to genetically modify the seed so that more people will receive it. He's called us to sow the seed, to sow it far and wide, and we need to trust in its power to work the way he intended for it to. Did did the farmer fail when he sowed that seed on that, that other soil? Was he just failed in his efforts? Well, no. I think what Jesus is showing us is that God's word is intended to differentiate between hearts. Right? And so... God intends that we spread the word far and wide and we try to attract people to the gospel by the gospel. And there are going to be people who will not respond. People who do respond, but don't become genuine disciples. But that's part of what God intends. You, you think about Jesus telling parables in the first place. Can, can you imagine for a moment, if uh, today I got up here and I got ready to preach. And I said, so uh, there's this farmer. And he went out and he started sowing seed. He started throwing it. He threw some by a road and he threw some, uh, you know, the bird snatched it up. And then he sowed some uh, over in this rocky soil and it sprang up real good at first, but then the sun scorched it uh, and it died. And then he sowed into the thorns and the weeds and it choked it out. It never bore good fruit, but he did find some good soil and it bore grapefruit um, He who has an ear, let him hear. That's it. You know, imagine preaching that way. Can can you imagine people thinking, okay, wait, what what did we just hear? What was that about? Why did Jesus teach in parables? Matthew 13, verse 9, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear. Verse 10, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Why is Jesus speaking in parables? Well, really the parable of the sower illustrates that point. Jesus isn't trying to attract any and every type of heart. Jesus is going to sow the seed and the heart that is seeking, the heart that is seeking the father is going to be drawn by it. Even if they don't understand it at first, like the disciples, they're going to dig deeper. What, what is God saying? What is it that God desires? What's the point of all of this? That was Jesus's approach. The truly seeking will find, but those who do not have the good and honest heart, even the opportunities they are given, will not profit them at all. Brethren, instead of trying to improve upon Jesus' method of evangelism, uh, maybe we need to develop a deeper faith and trust in the power of God's word to accomplish its purpose. And if its purpose is to make genuine disciples, um, you know maybe we've corrupted the mission. Maybe we've corrupted God's word because we were thinking that the goal the measure of success is how many people we get in the door. That's not the goal. That was never the goal. The goal is how many people come into fellowship with God and are able to enjoy uh, peace in his presence for all eternity. And that's a very different goal. We need to have a greater faith in God's word to accomplish his purpose. Look at Isaiah 55 for a moment. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 8, you may be familiar with uh, verse 8 and 9 here. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't think the way that man thinks. Um, His ways are higher than ours. But in that very context, notice what he goes on to say in verse 10. We're talking about his thoughts being as high as the heavens are above the earth compared with ours. Verse 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you see what he goes on to say? God doesn't think the way that we think. But you know what he's done? As the heavens are higher than the earth, he sent something down from heaven. He sent his word down from heaven. And his word is going to accomplish the purpose of changing the way that we think, right? To, to those who are willing to open their hearts to it. And it is going to accomplish its purpose. As we said before, did, that, did the seed fail? Uh, In the parable of the sower, you know, we we very easily could look at that rocky soil and say, you know what? The seed's really not working that well. Um, But I, I got this other seed over here that grows well anywhere. It's called a weed. How about we sow some of that? I bet it'll grow really well. That's not the goal. God's word is going to accomplish his purpose. We do not need to approve upon God's business model or alter his message to make it more relevant or attractive 21st century culture. I think sometimes we try really hard to make the gospel more relatable, uh, more applicable to, to the felt needs of the world around us, to their priorities, to their desires, uh, to our priorities, to our desires. Uh, we try to make it more down to earth. And yet sometimes in doing so, we may make it so down to earth that it becomes an earthly message. And that we rob it of its heavenly glory. We need to let the gospel be the gospel. And it will accomplish its purpose. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And is piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit. Of both joints and marrow. And is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's part of the purpose of God's word, it's going to differentiate the hearts. It's going to identify what is the the, uh, wayside soil? What is the rocky soil? What is the the weeds, uh, the thorny soil? It will accomplish its purpose. And so brethren, there is certainly a place for us seasoning our speech with salt, right? We don't want to unnecessarily turn people away from the gospel by the way in which we present it. We want to make sure that it is presented in a way that that shows God's grace, that shows his love. That the way we present it is consistent with Christ's character. We we want to start where people are at, even as Paul did in Acts 17 um, with those people in Athens. We, We want to become all things to all men. Paul talks about that. So there is a place for us giving thought to where people are at giving thought to how we communicate the gospel. But the highest goal of evangelism is not, you know, sweetening up the gospel, changing it in some way so that it will be attractive to people. The highest goal of the gospel is that we get out of the way of the gospel. That the way in which I present it uh, does not distract, does not hinder its message and its power in any way, shape, or form. And if we can do that then it will succeed in the purpose for which God sent it. Maybe it won't meet our measure of success, but that's what we want to talk about now. What is Jesus's measure of success? Heavenly and not earthly. Was Jesus a successful evangelist? You know, John six that we just read a little bit ago, when Jesus starts with a crowd of people and then he ends with only a few disciples. You know, that doesn't sound like success to us, does it? The night of Jesus' crucifixion, when even his very disciples have forsaken him and fled, looks a whole lot like failure. But it's not. Not in the least. It's accomplishing the greatest purpose imaginable. What about Noah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Elijah, By our standards, would we consider them to be successful evangelists? You know, Noah, who at the end of the day only has eight souls, himself included, on the ark. Was he failed? A failed preacher of righteousness, as 2 Peter calls him. God doesn't measure success by numbers or by popularity. He measures success by faithfulness to his message. In Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. In verse 26, he says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. You don't have to make a single convert to bring glory to God. Every time God's message is preached in faithfulness, God is glorified regardless of how it is received. You know, is our goal as a church that everybody in this community, everybody in society around us speaks well of us? You know, there's a sense in which certainly we need to be shining our lights for the Lord. There's no doubt about that. People need to see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. There is a place for them seeing um, the, the goodness, the love, the character of Christ shining through us. But if our goal is for everybody to speak well of us, Jesus says that's a more accurate picture of the false prophets than it is of my prophets. We need to make sure that the goal is making genuine disciples and is pointing people towards the Lord. Remember in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells some parable, uh, some parables about seeking and saving the lost. Here in Luke 15, starting in verse 3, it says, So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What lesson do we get from that? What's the point here? Jesus leaves the 99. The shepherd leaves the 99 to go and seek the one. What's the goal? God is not the God of the crowds. He's not the God of the masses. He's the God of the individual, right? He's seeking out that individual soul. And he doesn't say, one sheep. That was great. You know, uh, we're being real successful here, aren't we? No, he rejoices. That one soul has been turned to the Lord. That is the goal. And there is rejoicing in heaven over one soul that is truly repentant, that has come to the Lord. You know, while we do see in the book of Acts 3000 on the day of Pentecost, we also see God taking Philip and saying, here, I want you to go talk to this eunuch on the road on his way home. We see God preventing Paul from going to Macedonia and and taking him, sorry, preventing him from going to Asia and taking him instead to Macedonia where he can teach the Philippian jailer and Lydia. We see God commissioning Peter so he can go talk to Cornelius and his household. God cares about each individual soul and we do we need to as well. Sometimes we get discouraged when we've labored in evangelism for years and only helped bring one or two people to the Lord. We need to change our perspective. If we're genuinely bringing people to the Lord, then God be praised. Then let's rejoice that that one sheep has been found. Um you know, if we're not bringing people to the Lord because we're not sowing the seed, maybe because we're not reflecting the character of Christ, then that's a problem. And we need to get to work on that. Brethren, we do need to get to work on that. Um, But if we're faithfully, diligently sowing the seed and people aren't attracted by the gospel, God is still glorified. The purpose of his word is still being accomplished. Are we interested in souls or simply in the size and influence of this church? You know, if souls are saved, we're going to add more workers to this flock, to this body. But that's secondary. The primary goal is making genuine disciples. That they can have their sins washed away that they can have fellowship with the Lord, God's spirit dwelling within them, that they can have a hope of eternity in his presence someday. Let's get busy in that work, but let's make sure that we're pursuing it the way that the master teacher did, by attracting people to the gospel by the gospel and not by anything else. Are we evangelizing the way that Jesus did? Are we making genuine disciples? Are we trusting the power of God's word are we measuring success the way that he does? It is true that we cannot practice our faith without propagating our faith. Um, and, and none of what we've said today is to, to comfort us into thinking, well, yeah, we, we don't need to do any more in that. It, it's okay that we're not making more comforts. No, we, we need to get busy. We need to get diligent. Uh, we need to put our hand to the plow and not look back but we need to make sure that we're viewing it the way that God does. Let's get to work. Let's sow the seed. We can be sure that we'll accomplish its purpose. Um, It's not about some perfect method. It's not about some perfect marketing strategy. It's about sowing the seed and sowing as many seeds as far and wide as we can. Um, I I hope soon that we as a congregation can, can... spend some time talking more about evangelism and what it is that we need to do. Uh, but our primary goal is sowing as many seeds as possible and making sure that that seed is nothing other than the power, the living power of God's word. What about you today? Uh, maybe you're the lost sheep in Luke 15. Jesus cares about you individually, about your soul. And if you are not living in fellowship with God, if you have not put him on the throne of your heart, if he's not reigning as king in your life, then you need to make a change. And we want to help you make that change. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who needs no repentance. Will you repent today? Will you turn back to the Lord? Will you seek him? If you've never committed your life to the Lord, you can have your old man of sin and guilt and brokenness buried in the waters of baptism. You can be raised to walk in newness of life. If you've done that, but that old man has risen back up, you haven't kept him buried. By God's grace, you can be cleansed today. If there's any way that we can help you in your relationship with the Lord, that's why we're here. Won't you please make it known by coming to the front as we stand and sing together.